Hi, everyone, and welcome to Kept on Ice, a true crime podcast where we focus on cold and unsolved cases. Today, we will be taking a look at the unsolved murder of Helene Joyce Anderson, also known as Nikki Anderson, and Adrian Hale, which took place in January of 1986 in Bremerton, Washington. I would also like to extend a quick trigger warning with this case, as we will be discussing themes dealing with sexual assault, as well as the murder of a young child. And to be honest, some parts of this case are very difficult to hear and talk about. So please keep that in mind as you continue to listen to this episode. With that being said, let's get started with today's episode. If you're curious about my sources or where you could find additional information on this case, please check the show notes. So Helene Joyce Anderson, also known as Nikki Anderson, was born on October 15, 1958, in Indiana. And while Helene was her given name, she pretty much exclusively went by Nikki, so I will be referring to her as Nikki for the remainder of this episode. And she was a beautiful young woman with a smile that radiated in every picture I found of her. I didn't find much information on her childhood or early life, but Nikki has been described by friends as a reliable, responsible, hardworking, and careful mother who was devoted to her two children. And I quote, to know her was to love her. She was like smelling the earth after a good rain. So while Nikki grew up primarily in Indiana, in the early 1980s, Nikki decided to move to Bremerton with her boyfriend at the time, Kenny Hale, who was in the Navy. If you're unfamiliar with this area like I was, Bremerton is a small city in Washington state known for its naval base and shipyard. And it sits on the Kitsap Peninsula, just an hour long ferry ride away from downtown Seattle. Once settled into their new lives in Washington, Nikki and Kenny had a beautiful baby girl and named her Adrian Hale. She was born on November 9, 1981. Kenny has said, and I quote, when she was two, she was able to spell her name, Adrian. Tears would just roll down my eyes that my baby was able to spell her name. Furthermore, he said, she was her own little person with her own little attitude and personality, and I'm just awed by it. Shortly after Adrian was born, Nikki and Kenny decided to part ways romantically, but they remained good friends and were active co-parents to their child, and Kenny spent a great deal of time at Nikki's place, which was a duplex in East Bremerton on Magnolia Drive. As the years went on, Nikki got a job as a cook at Arby's to support herself and met someone new, another Navy man by the name of Otha Tucker, and she and him later had a handsome baby boy by the name of Marcus. By January of 1986, Baby Marcus was less than a year old, Adrian was four years old, Nikki and Otha were engaged and all were planning to move to San Diego by the end of January. Nikki's fiancé had been stationed at a new naval base and the couple were getting ready to move all of them to San Diego together. And by all accounts, Nikki was super excited about this move and ready to begin her new life with her fiancé. However, Nikki and Adrian would never be able to make that move and begin the next chapter of their lives. On the evening of January 29, 1986, Kenny had spent the evening with Nikki and Adrian, which was a common practice for them. By all accounts, Nikki and Kenny were great co-parents despite no longer being together. As he prepared to leave the house at 8.30 p.m., Adrian asked if she could spend the night with Kenny instead of staying with Nikki. 
As it was a school night and Adrian was scheduled to go to preschool the following day, Kenny denied her request to spend the night with him, but promised he would return the following day and spend more time with her, as him and Nikki lived relatively close to each other. So Kenny left their home, waving goodbye to his little girl, who was looking out at him through the front window of the duplex. The next day, January 30th, 1986, Nikki was expecting some movers to return some furniture she had purchased in preparation for her move to San Diego. However, when the movers came, she didn't answer the door. And after a few minutes, the movers left a note on her door advising her to call them back later. However, before leaving the residence, the movers went and spoke to Nikki's neighbor, Pam, because according to the movers, they heard a baby crying so loudly that it was concerning. And in response, Pam simply nodded and closed her front door. Some other individuals came to the residence as well, but again, Nikki never answered the door. Later in the evening, Kenny returns to the house ready to see his little girl once again. He knocked on the door, but Nikki didn't answer. While waiting for her to answer, he sees there are several notes tacked to her front door. After a few minutes with no answer from Nikki, Kenny decides that she must be out and decided to write her his own note. So the movers from earlier left a note stating that Nikki needed to contact them or else there would be legal consequences. So Kenny takes that note, turns it over and writes, quote, Hey, you better call these guys. I stopped by about this time. Then he tacks the note to the door and begins to leave the residence. However, as he turned to leave, he hears an unsettling sound come from inside the house. And it's the small cries of a baby. He turns the doorknob and surprisingly, the front door is unlocked and Nikki never left her door unlocked. And as he walked into the house, he tripped while making his way inside, only to reach down and realize he had tripped over the leg of his four-year-old daughter, Adrian Hale, who lay dead in the front room of the apartment, just feet away from her mother, Nikki Anderson. As he stood there, as the reality of what he had walked into sunk in, he hears the cries of baby Marcus, the sound that had originally drew him back into the house. He was in his playpen and had been in that room with his mother and sister's bodies for almost 24 hours before anybody had found him. Kenny then grabbed Marcus out of his playpen and ran to the neighbor's house to call the police. Police arrived at the scene at 9 p.m. and also found Nikki and Adrian's bodies in the front room of the apartment. They had both been strangled to death and Nikki had also suffered blunt force trauma as well as some additional injuries that have not been disclosed to the public. It was estimated that Nikki and Adrian had been dead for at least 18 hours before police arrived. Thankfully, baby Marcus was alive and unharmed, but a cushion from the living room couch was in his playpen with him, and it was later discovered that his mother's blood was actually on him in that playpen. The house showed clear signs of a struggle, but no forced entry. In fact, the front door was unlocked when Kenny arrived, but the back door was locked and secured as usual. Based on the blood spatter and the arrangement of the house, it became clear to investigators that Nikki had attempted to fight her attacker and suffered some form of injury from an edged weapon, and it is believed that this injury led to Nikki's blood being in various locations around the home. Based on the lack of items stolen from the home and the lack of forced entry, it is believed that Nikki knew the person who attacked her. As friends described her as an extremely careful person who kept her doors locked and would only open the door if she was expecting your arrival. Despite the clear struggle at the scene, nothing appeared to have been stolen from the home, 
and investigators began taking witness statements and conducting interviews. They found that, surprisingly, no one in the complex seemed to hear the struggle, especially as the walls of her 1986 duplex were thin. Specifically, Nikki's neighbor and friend, referred to only as Pam, claimed she never heard anything alarming the night of the murders, despite sharing a wall with Nikki and hearing every time her baby cried the following day. And trust me, we will be discussing Pam more because I have a lot of questions when it comes to this woman. Throughout the investigation, Pam stated that the baby cried at times, but that was nothing new. And according to Pam, if she had heard screaming or some form of struggle, she would have said something, which personally I find suspicious because you managed to hear the baby crying every time, but did not hear the brutal murder taking place next door especially considering the fact that when investigators entered the home, they could hear people having a normal level conversation in the apartment next door. And while I might be willing to give you the argument that Nikki may not have screamed as to not wake her children, I refuse to give you the argument that Adrian, a terrified four-year-old girl, would not have screamed. Now, speaking of Adrian, it is believed that she was sleeping down the hall when the attacker entered the home and was later woken up by the sound of the attack. She then left her room to look for her mother to see what was making the noise. And based on where her body was found, it is believed that she may have saw what was happening and tried to run out the front door, but she never made it. And I think that one of the most heartbreaking pieces of information in this case is that Adrian almost wasn't home with Nikki that night. Remember, she asked Kenny to go home with him that evening before she was killed. And Kenny said that it's a decision that haunts him to this day. In the immediate aftermath of the crime, the case did not receive much media attention, despite the horrific scene that was found that night. And the case went cold rather quickly compared to other murder cases at the time. A few articles were published in the early stages of the investigation in local news coverage, but in my opinion, there was not nearly as much media coverage as there should have been for a double homicide, especially when it included a child. Detective Garland, the lead investigator of the case, said he feared that maybe the killings fell off the pages of the newspapers rather quickly at the time because Nikki wasn't a white, blonde-haired cheerleader type. That tends to get more media coverage than a single mom and a woman of color. He continued by saying, quote, Sometimes you can't help but bring in the color barrier. Sometimes I look back and say, what if that had been a white four-year-old child? Would they have put a little more extra effort behind the investigation? After the first several weeks, the case eventually fell off the radar of investigators for years until it was reopened in 1993, only for that renewed effort to fall flat. Over the years, several people of interest would be looked at for taking the lives of Nikki Anderson and Adrian Hale, and this case would be reexamined in 1993, 2003, 2009, and 2019 but still remained cold. But seemingly, there was a breakthrough in the case in 2018. In 2018, 32 years after the murders, the robe and nightshirt Nikki was wearing at the crime scene was processed for DNA and came back with a strong, unknown male DNA profile around the neck of both garments, as well as the shoulders of the clothes. They were also able to match this DNA with other male DNA on the end table inside the home where Nikki and Adrian lived. Now, this is important because both Nikki and Adrian's cause of death was manual strangulation, 
meaning the attacker used their hands to kill both of them. So if there is male DNA around the neck of Nikki's shirt, there's a strong possibility that the DNA belongs to her killer. However, this would be another dead end into the investigation because it was later discovered that this male DNA actually belonged to baby Marcus. And he later had to be tracked down by investigators to have his DNA eliminated from the crime scene since he was obviously less than a year old at the time of the murders. And I'm sure it was extremely frustrating for the investigators, but I'm sure it was also heartbreaking for Kenny and the family who were still holding out hope for justice. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Investigators have collected at least one unaccounted for male DNA profile within the seed and have been soliciting the names of people who may have been in Nikki's life, whose DNA has not been compared yet. And investigators have expressed that if they could just get the name of the person to compare the DNA with, that might be able to put to bed this horrific case and finally give the families some closure. So now we're going to get into some suspects and some other evidence that has been released in this case. One of the most eerie factors of this case to me is baby Marcus. He was left unharmed and there is evidence that he was even moved into his playpen after the murders. But why? This killer is seemingly cold-hearted enough to strangle a four-year-old to death, but moves a one-year-old into his playpen post a brutal double homicide. I read a very interesting perspective from the Washed Away podcast, which also has an episode on this case, featuring the current detective investigating the case. They mention a possible explanation as to why baby Marcus was left alive is that the killer either thought Adrian was old enough to identify them, or maybe she even recognized them and knew exactly who killed her mother, whereas baby Marcus would not be able to do either of those things. And not only was he unharmed, but he was found with his mother's blood on him. And there is also evidence suggesting that the killer moved Marcus from the couch where he was laying down and put him into the playpen after the murders because how else would their blood be on him? This aspect is just so chilling to me that somebody brutally murders a mother and a four-year-old girl and then has the audacity to pick up her child and move him into a playpen so he's more comfortable. To kill his mother and his sister in front of him and then move him to sleep after the fact is one of the most cold-blooded things I think I have ever heard. Another piece of the puzzle is the lack of forced entry into the home and that seemingly no one heard them scream. This piece of evidence really leads me to believe that Nikki and Adrian knew exactly who killed them. I agree with Washed Away, where I feel as somebody came in, killed Nikki, and then killed Adrian because she knew who they were and she would be able to identify them later. And while four is not very old and there may be future issues down the line as far as prosecution of the crime would be concerned, a four-year-old can definitely still tell you the difference from one person to another. And especially if they had spent time with that person prior to that night, she would be able to tell you who they were, even if it was only a general description of who they were in relation to her mother. I see this in four-year-olds I know. Being able to tell you the difference between mommy's friend versus mommy's brother versus mommy's hairdresser. But the children know who they are, even if they don't know their name. And the last piece of evidence is that 
Adrian and Nikki were both killed by means of manual strangulation, meaning that no mistake was made when killing them. It can take anywhere from three to seven minutes to strangle somebody to death. And while that might not seem like a long time, it's definitely long enough to realize what you are doing and make a decision to stop. Especially since you not only killed a mother, you then turned around and spent the same amount of time to kill her child. Strangulation is a particularly violent and personal way to kill somebody. And it is a way for someone to exert complete control over you down to whether you live or die. So when the investigation was first launched, Kenny Hale was posed as suspect number one. And in all honesty, this is standard operating procedure as not only did he find the victims, but he has a close relationship to both of them. And his only alibi is that he was home watching TV at the time. It is an incredibly sad fact that fathers murdering significant others or their own children is not an uncommon occurrence in society. So I completely understand looking into Kenny at the beginning of the investigation. However, as the case progressed, in my opinion, the original officers wanted so badly to put Kenny behind bars for this crime that they did not adequately investigate other possible suspects. Kenny cooperated with the police from the very beginning. He gave them the shoes and clothes he was wearing that night and sat for several interviews with police, never gave conflicting information, and was always honest about where he was the last time he saw Nikki and Adrian, and what led him back to the house the following day to find them. Also, I managed to watch an Investigation Discovery episode on this case, and Kenny actually spoke in that episode, and personally, I looked into his eyes, and I did not believe he had anything to do with this heinous crime. We would later find out that the DNA previously discussed in this case ruled him out completely, but I believed he was innocent long before I discovered that fact. But prior to that DNA evidence coming forward, Kenny was still suspect number one, and police, in my opinion, were determined to put an innocent black man behind bars. In one interview, according to Kenny, they told him, and I quote, you know you did this, just admit you murdered your daughter and murdered Nikki. And in my opinion, the motives, and I use the term motive very loosely, that the police were giving Kenny to murder Nikki and his child is that Nikki was going to move away with his child and he would have to start paying child support. In the same investigation discovery episode, they said, and I quote, look like clear motivators for somebody to do a heinous crime like this. I'm sorry, but if you're using child support as a motive to commit a heinous crime against a mother and the child, that doesn't make any sense to me, especially in the context of this particular crime. By all accounts, Nikki and Kenny parted very amicably and were active co-parents to Adrian because they wanted her to understand that just because her parents weren't together doesn't mean that they loved her any less. And they wanted her to have loving experiences with both of her parents, despite them not being romantically involved. So despite completely cooperating with law enforcement, Kenny was still not believed. And he actually agreed to take a polygraph test with law enforcement against the advice of family and friends. And just as Kenny was sitting down to take that polygraph test, there was a knock on the door and someone informed him that his attorney was there. His attorney said that he was not going to take a polygraph test and should the police need any additional statements from Kenny, 
They are to go through his attorney. Following this incident, Kenny left with his new attorney and no polygraph test took place. Kenny's family actually got him counsel behind his back since he wasn't listening to them or their advice. Now, in this same investigation discovery episode I watched in preparation for this episode, the lead detective talked about how it was suspicious that Kenny put up a roadblock for investigators and thus must be untruthful in some way. This statement is truly ridiculous to me and continues to boast my personal theory that police wanted to pin Kenny for this crime because Kenny has said, and I quote, after I walked out of the police department that day, I didn't hear anything from the Bremerton Police Department until like 10 years later, end quote. Despite the fact that Kenny had already sat down for several interviews, turned over his clothes and any other necessary items that the police had asked for, he was still being untruthful in some way. In my opinion, he was not being difficult at all. And furthermore, I have absolutely no authority to give you any legal advice. I am an urban planner by education and practice. However, if you are ever in a situation where your Miranda rights are read to you, shut up. I am not a lawyer and this is not legal advice. However, when they say anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law, they mean it. The Fifth Amendment exists for a reason, but your Fifth Amendment rights only work if you use them and don't say anything. Once your Miranda rights are read to you, you should contact a lawyer. Again, this is not legal advice and I am not a lawyer. However, based on my research, if your Miranda rights are being read to you, your status in the case has changed. I fully understand why Kenny didn't do this and continue to talk to police. I'm sure he's of the mindset of, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a victim in this horrible crime. If I just cooperate, if I just tell them the truth, if I just go along with everything that's happening, surely they will protect me and find out who committed this heinous crime against my child and the mother of my child. But unfortunately, in my opinion, the police were hell-bent on making him the one who did it. Especially if police are going to the lengths of saying him invoking his constitutional rights after being nothing but cooperative is suspicious. So in my opinion, police were convinced that Kenny was the one who had killed Adrian and Nikki and while investigating, spoke to her duplex neighbor, Pam. That's right, we're circling back to this woman because in the words of Emily D. Baker, I have questions. So Pam actually knew before anyone that the baby was crying next door and didn't say anything or check on Nikki. Especially when people around the neighborhood described Nikki and Pam's relationship as good friends. However, in her interviews with police, Pam described them as acquaintances and not very friendly with one another. They were just neighbors. So according to Pam, she was so nonchalant about the comment from the movers because it was common for one of Nikki's children to be, quote, fussy, end quote, while she was trying to take care of the other. I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. I have lived near people with small children, and I would notice if their child was suddenly crying and screaming all the time, as opposed to the occasional crying fit, which would be normal for somebody of Marcus and Adrian's age. And suddenly now the story is you didn't hear anything the night of the murders or hear the baby crying at all the next day, but you've heard the baby crying in the past. I have questions. You share a thin 
wall in a duplex. So since Pam's story wasn't making any sense and the police were clearly in disbelief that she didn't hear anything, she then claimed that she had an earache and if she was laying down on the good ear, she wouldn't have been able to hear anything. And then she later added that she may have taken some nighttime medication to help her sleep, which also wouldn't have been able to wake her up and she wouldn't have heard anything. As the interview continued, police asked Pam to walk them through her evening, the night of the murderers, and she claimed that she was actually the last person who saw Nikki alive, not Kenny as police had originally thought. And based on Kenny's statements, this would have been shortly after he left the house. But she wouldn't know Kenny had already provided that statement. Another interesting point of this is Kenny said he never saw Pam, and Pam says she never saw Kenny. Also, Pam never came forward when the police arrived on scene, and she was not initially interviewed until after Kenny obtained an attorney. I'm sorry, I know that we don't have any real proof that this woman did anything, but this woman is incredibly suspicious to me. Her movements and the way she acted post the murder just makes no sense to me, and I know suspicion is not proof, but... I just refuse to believe that you did not hear a brutal murder taking place between the thin walls of a 1986 duplex. I have a hard time believing that statement. So while police were speaking to Pam, they asked her about any potential suspects or people in Nikki's life that might look to harm her. And she mentions a man by the name of Antoine. Antoine has been described as an acquaintance of Nikki's and actually visited the house between the last time Nikki was seen alive and when Kenny returns the following day to find the crime scene. According to Pam, Nikki was terrified of Antoine and did not want to be alone with him due to this fear. However, Nikki's friends had stated that Nikki and Antoine had known each other for several years, and Nikki had offered him a place to stay when he was down on his luck. However, following this interview, police soon found out that Antoine had a history of domestic violence with an ex-girlfriend of his which seemingly moved him up the list of suspects. So on January 30th, about two hours before Nikki and Adrian's bodies would be discovered, Antoine and another friend stopped by the duplex to look for Nikki. But clearly, Nikki didn't answer the door. When she didn't answer the door, they went over to Pam's door to ask her if she had heard from Nikki. Again, Pam claims she didn't hear anything and she hasn't seen Nikki at all. So Antoine and his friend started asking other neighbors if they had seen or heard from Nikki. And as more neighbors told them they hadn't heard from her or seen her, they decided to leave the duplex. After finding out about this story, investigators found and questioned Antoine and the person who was with him during that visit. While there was no physical evidence tying Antoine to the scene, there was also no evidence to rule him out either. A few months after the murders, Antoine was actually convicted of a sexual-related crime against a child who was around the same age as Adrian. To police, this pushed him back to the top of their suspect list. However, there was still no evidence that indicated he was the one who killed Adrian or Nikki. Years later, once DNA at the scene became available, Antoine's DNA was compared and he was ruled out as a suspect in the murders. And finally, there is Nikki's fiance who was immediately ruled out due to him being on duty in San Diego at the time of the murders. 
The Navy and several other witnesses confirmed he was on base at the time of the murders, and when DNA became available, he too was ruled out completely as a suspect. At the time of her death, Elaine Joyce Anderson, also known as Nikki Anderson, was only 27 years old, and Adrian Hale was only four years old. Nikki was so young, and she had so much to offer her children and wanted to be an outstanding mother to them. She was described as the type of person anyone would love. Adrian was a happy and beautiful little girl, described as incredibly smart and had an attitude that was all her own. Kenny continues to tell Nikki and Adrian stories to this day, because as he says, quote, it gets kind of hard to go back and relive the story, but as long as I have air in my lungs and I am able to tell their story, I'll keep telling their story until I can't tell it no more, end quote. My heart really goes out to Kenny, who lost not only his daughter, but a friend and the mother of his child that night. And I can't help but think, of baby Marcus who had to grow up without his mother or his sister. I just truly wish this family nothing but the best. I hope you all are okay. I hope you all are safe. And I hope you all one day have the closure of knowing what happened to Nikki and Adrian. And I look forward to checking on this case, hoping that it one day will be closed. Detective Martin Garland from the Bremerton Police Department has worked at the police department for over 18 years And not only has he worked extensively on this case, he grew up in Bremerton. So the murders of Nikki and Adrian have a deeper meaning to him. If you have any information, no matter how small you think it is, about Nikki Anderson or Adrian Hale's unsolved murders, please call Detective Garland at 360-473-5488. Any piece of evidence helps, and your call could be the one that brings so much closure to this case. So this week's subscriber theory comes from Sydney, who wrote, I personally feel like Pam knows a lot more than she is leading on. While I am not calling her a cold-blooded murderer, I do think that she's aware of what happened that night and is either protecting someone or was threatened to keep her mouth shut. Strangulation is typically considered a crime of passion, since it's something that requires you to not only commit an egregious act of violence, but also look at your victim as the life drains from them. So it's only natural to assume that before the crime occurred, there would have been some sort of altercation that occurred beforehand. I find it hard to believe that someone just barged into her door and immediately started strangling her. And since Pam stated that on numerous occasions she heard Marcus crying, I have no doubt in my mind she would hear Nikki fighting with whoever took her and Adrian's life that night. I mean, I can hear my neighbors screaming at each other pretty much every day, so I know she heard something. I'm just curious why she didn't say anything. It's possible she witnessed what happened, and since the assailant knew where she lived, threatened her. Or he didn't see her, and she was just fearful that he would retaliate if her testimony became public. Either way, she's very weird. Thank you so much for your submission, Sydney. And I think you bring up a very interesting point, which honestly I hadn't given much thought about. But if Pam was threatened and she knows more than she's leading on, it does make sense that her actions after the murders would be very weird. 
It's definitely an interesting perspective, and I'm going to think about it a lot more off air. If you're interested in having your thoughts, theories, or opinions of the next case read out with the next mass release of the podcast episode, please consider becoming part of the iceberg and subscribing to the Kept on Ice podcast. As a subscriber, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, the chance to have your thought, theory, or opinion of the case read out with the mass release, and a monthly happy hour where you'll get the chance to sit down with me and the rest of the iceberg to discuss all things true crime. So that concludes this story and today's episode, everyone. I hope you all have an amazing rest of your day. Please be sure to leave a five-star review and be sure to follow this podcast if you're interested in these stories. Again, thank you so much for listening. Don't underestimate the power of your voice and I will see you all in my next episode. Bye, everyone. 